How are we doing today? Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, after that last song, I don't know if we need a minute to just catch our breath. <laughs> There's a lot of words to sing there. So, uh, thank you for praying for us last week as we were with Angie's dad in Virginia. Um, we had a, a good time with him, and it was just um, sweet to be together. I, I think I've mentioned before, um, he's been following on our live stream. And so, can Steve, can you unmute the congregational mic? So on the count of three, I want you to say, hi, Jerry. So one, two, three. Hi, hi Jerry. So he's watching. I'll probably get a message about that. <laughs> um, he's been sending me texts every Sunday just saying, hey, I'm praying for you as, as you preach the word. So, um, all right. She lost it this morning, and I was like, I can't look at you right now. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Samuel 16. Uh, We're going to look at this passage of Scripture in 1 Samuel 16. Uh, In a few minutes, we're going to look at another passage um, nearby in the neighborhood of 1 Samuel 16. So if you start there, you'll be able to quickly go to where um, we're going to be in a minute. Now, if I were to ask you this morning... Who are your heroes? How would you answer that question? Or who would you say is a hero? Who are the heroes in your life? And then a a secondary question. Who are the heroes that our world looks to? Would you agree with me? That the world is in desperate need of people of integrity. Amen. Okay, we got an amen. We're, we're, we're having a revival service right now. I mean, too often we follow those who look a certain way, can achieve certain physical feats, or they exude a certain kind of confidence. Now, me as a sports junkie, I mean, it's, I, I see it all the time it, as I watch either team sports or individual sports where it just seems like that there is this spotlight that we put on people that only fans the flame of the selfishness and the me-centered actions that often exude themselves when people just want to point the finger at their achievements and at their ability and what they can accomplish. We live in a generation of me-focused people. Now, me-centeredness isn't anything new. It's not a 21st century problem. Me-centeredness began in the garden when Adam and Eve chose to follow their own desires rather than follow the will of God and listen to Him and to not eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But we see it in our culture because this is the world we live in, that it's all around us. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to me that I've lived through the age of like only four or five channels on TV to now there's like too many channels. But we don't even live in an age where we watch TV anymore. We watch YouTube 
right? Like my kids and even I like have YouTube followers, like guys that play golf and I want to learn how to be a better golfer. So I'll watch this person or that person, those kinds of things. But like this influencer generation, you know what I'm talking about? If you watch YouTube, it's like these people have these channels that, and they, they talk about all sorts of kinds of things, but it's all about them. And so we live in a culture where we are inundated with, let's put the spotlight on ourselves, no matter what the cost is. We elevate people with low moral character. And we put them on pedestals. And then we wonder why we have a, a whole generation of people that are lost in the wilderness and don't want to hear anything of God. Virtuous living is not worth following when there are so many examples of people getting their own way and they seem to have fun doing it. But what is comforting to know is that as people of faith, God has supplied many examples for us of virtuous men and women who lived exemplary lives. And they are found in the Word of God. If you have a Bible which I hope you do. And if you don't have a Bible, we want to get you one because the Word of God is so important. It is so powerful. It is so nourishing. It strengthens the heart. That as you open the Word of God, you have these examples laid before us of men and women who believed God in the midst of great trials and circumstances. And yet the danger is is that as we often look at this collection of people found in the Scriptures, we look at them as no more as characters in a book. Like we say, oh, okay, well, this is about this guy, and here's his story, and we can name all the high points of what happened in Paul's life or Peter's life or Moses or Abraham, and we think it just seems like that they're characters in a story. We often forget that these were real, living, breathing people that faced great hardships, and and while maybe... uh, a story of their life is only found in a few chapters of the Scripture. Oftentimes, there are many decades that elapse in their lives as they walked with God and, and, and faced all sorts of kind of conflict and, and difficulty, and yet they believed in God. And what, what we find in the Word of God, and we've talked about this before, but there's a whole chapter in the Bible devoted towards highlighting or, or shining a spotlight on who these men and women are. And it's found in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, in what we call the Hall of Faith. And we call it that. God doesn't call it that. But this collection of narrative of people that believed God by faith. We see the the great extremes that they had to go through. And and you can read through that chapter. And it kind of walks you through the Old Testament history. All the way back from the beginning. and, 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 And just... People are mentioned in, in what they did as they believed God in crazy times and situations and how God honored them. And for all eternity, these men and women are pointed out to us and preserved for us as an example of who to follow, of how to live. And in Hebrews chapter 11, further on in this story, in verse 38, we read these words. 
And this is a parenthetical statement inserted by the author of Hebrews. As he considers all of these people, he says, they were men of whom the world was not worthy. Just think about that for a second. If you go to Hebrews 11 and you read through that list, how they suffered greatly for their faith in God. In fact, we read closer to these verses that some of them were cut in half. They were sawn in two for their faith. The author of Hebrews says that these men and women that believed in God were people that the world were not worthy of. And yet we would rather elevate people that we esteem that don't have character, integrity, a moral compass that draws us into the truth of God. It often takes some time for mankind to appreciate the significance of one's life and the depth of their character. In the 1930s, author Carl Sandburg finished a four-volume biography of President Abraham Lincoln. And shortly after writing about Abraham Lincoln's assassination, Carl Sandburg said this, A tree is best measured when it is down. And so for us, over the foreseeable future, I want us to draw our attention to one of the great heroes of Scripture. One of those men that's mentioned in Hebrews 11. For us, we see his significance in his character. We see great faith in the midst of overwhelming odds. We see an honest heart that dealt with serious pain in his life. And in the midst of it, continued to trust God as he sang songs of praise to his heavenly father. The man, as you can tell in your bulletin, is none other than King David. This peasant shepherd boy who was called by God to lead the nation of Israel for the glory of God. David is the only person in all of scripture that is called a man after God's own heart. And there's a lot of people mentioned in Scripture that loved God and that were faithful to Him. He's the only one. He's mentioned more than any other Old Testament person in the pages of the New Testament. There are 66 chapters devoted to Him in the Old Testament. He was a shepherd, a musician, a leader of people. He was a loyal friend who judged with wisdom and equity. And he was like a man like us, anything but perfect. Having made tragic choices, he bore the brunt of the consequences that were brought upon him, his family, and the nation he led. And yet, in the midst of all of it, this man continued to trust in the Lord, and he found grace and mercy and was blessed for it. 
Now, we're introduced to David in the historical narrative in 1 Samuel 16, and that's why I had you turn there. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in this passage. But for us to appreciate who David is and the the backdrop of history that he entered into, we need to take a step back in Israel's history. And and I I want you to see what was going on in, in this world that David was introduced in. It was said by biblical scholar G. Frederick Owen about the period of the time of 1 Samuel that the people of God were on a long drift from God. That was the world into which David was born. The nation of Israel had been on a long drift from God. I mean, God had done miraculous things for them. He had been so faithful to them. He led them in the wilderness to go into the promised land. And he provided miraculously every step of the way. I mean, if if you were to read Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you can't help but see God's miraculous hand on this nation's behalf. And then you open the pages of Joshua, the pages of conquest, the pages of Israel entering the land. And again, God shows himself strong on behalf of his people. And then the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, gives us that tragic drift. Because all along, as God would walk with this people, they would often forsake him. They would often follow their own ways. And in the book of Judges, we read that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And for a very long time, generations of people, the nation of Israel was living in the land of promise given to them by their amazing, powerful, loving, heavenly father. And they continued to do what was right in their own eyes. The book of 1 Samuel, which is the book that follows Judges, in the historical narrative, opens up with Eli and his wicked sons. And after they depart from the scene, Samuel is called by God to be the final judge over the nation of Israel. He's the final man that was to be called to help judge the nation as they were in these spirals, downward spirals of unbelief. Samuel will, in fact, become this last judge because he is the one that God calls to make the transition from having judges to having a king. Now, turn with me to 1 Samuel 8 real quick. This is an important passage in our understanding of what's going on in Israel at the time. We read in 1 Samuel 8 that Samuel was old as Chapter 8, verse 1 says, Samuel was old. And what do we read? Well, he appointed his sons, Joel and Abijah, as judges. They were to follow his footsteps. But they did not follow the godly example of their father. We read in verse 3, His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. These sons would fit well in the machine of government. They would do really well in Washington, D.C. 
They were in it for themselves. The nation of Israel was teetering on collapse. They were weary, dismayed, and oppressed by their leaders. The judges were taking bribes. The people that sat under their leadership were oppressed by their selfishness. And so we read in 1 Samuel 8 that the nation cried out and they wanted a king. The judges weren't working. They wanted to be like the other nations around them. And so Samuel, while old in age, heard their cries and he prayed. He prayed and cried out to God. It was a big decision. And he felt the weight of the responsibility of having to answer on behalf of the people of their requests before the Lord. Samuel prayed because not only was it a big decision, it was also because it was never God's intention that they have a king. The people wanted a king to be like the nations. They thought if we have a king that sits on a throne, he'll protect us, he'll guide us, he'll lead us. We see it all around us, Samuel. We want to be like them. But God's intention was that he would be their king. And the Lord was all they ever needed. But you read in 1 Samuel 8 that the Lord relented. He heard the cries of the people. And while it was never his desire, he relented and said, okay, if you want a king, you're going to get a king. Did you ever play that game with God? Or you want something from him? And he's like, hey, this isn't for you. And you keep asking. And you keep waiting. And every time you talk with him, you bring it up and bring it up and bring it up. Sometimes God relents. And he says, if you want it, go ahead. But it's not always what is best for us. So God tells Samuel, give the people what they want. Give them the king that they want. Give them the king that they choose. Verse 18 indicates that of chapter 8. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. See, God knew something about what they were asking for. If you put a person in the way of who God should be, that person will bring trouble and conflict to you. That's a principle that exists in life in general. If we put any person in our lives between us and the Lord, it is not good for us. And so God relents and gives them their king. Who's their king? Well, we're introduced to him. He's King Saul. He was chosen because he looked good. He checked all the boxes. If they did any kind of, um, 
you know, studies before if they were to have election periods like we do, right? They'd set him before a panel of people and be like, yep, that's the guy. He looks good. He's strong. He's a leader of people. He commands attention. All of those things from the outside looked very good. Saul played the part and had a good image. He started off well and led the armies of Israel and got the job done. But within a few short chapters of him being elevated to the place of king, and we're talking just a short chap, few short chapters. I mean, there's 66 devoted to David. Within a few short chapters of Saul's reign, we read that the spirit of Lord, the Lord left Saul as quickly as it came upon him. Why? Because Saul acted foolishly by making a burnt offering that was not pleasing to the Lord. He was out to battle. They, they conquered a victory and, and they were celebrating this victory. And, and we see that Saul was calling for Samuel to come and to be a part of the celebration and to offer sacrifices. And, and Saul grew impatient. He looked around at the people and he's like, okay, there, there should be a, a celebration here, but not everyone's here that needs to be here and we can't celebrate yet. And so I don't want to lose the attention of the people. So I'm going to offer the offering myself. And he offered the burnt offering, and he was confronted by Samuel, who was the judge of Israel, and and the kingdom of Saul was not to endure as a result of Saul's foolish act. In 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, we read this, But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord has commanded you. Basically, what Samuel says to Saul is you didn't stay in your lane. You didn't do what God wanted you to do. And as a, as a result of being hasty, as a result of fearing that the people would leave, as a result of elevating yourself above God, your kingdom will not endure. And as Samuel says these words to Saul, he also says, but there is a king that God's looking for. And God will choose his king. The people chose you. God's going to choose his. Saul continued to make foolish decisions. And by 1 Samuel 15... Samuel rebuked Saul one final time and condemned his sinfulness. Verse 35 says this in 1 Samuel 15. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now you just heard me say, wasn't Saul the, king's cho- or the people's choice? Well, he was. Because God relented and gave the people what they wanted. But in the sense of God's heart for his people, he, he never wanted anyone like King Saul to be king over his people. He did regret the choice. God is sovereign over the affairs of what happens in the world. That doesn't mean that God is always going to step in and say, you know what, I'm just going to take this bad situation out of the picture. Sometimes God 
lets things go their way. But God always is faithful. And He always remains with His people. So now it's time for us to see the king that God chose for the nation. One unlike the people chose. And in that choice, we see encouragement for us. Because in the choice of David, we are reminded that God sees things differently. He sees the world differently than we do. And what matters to him most is far different than what matters to us. What matters to God most is far different than what matters to the world. We would do well to believe that. To trust that. So let's look at 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 through 3. Let me read these for us. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Now, after some time passed, we're not sure how long. It just says, now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve? Samuel was in a state of grief. He was saddened. He was grief stricken over the tragic choices that Saul made and the rebuke that he had to bring to him. The Lord came to Samuel, how long will you grieve? In chapter 15, verse 11, we read this. I regret, let me read verse 10 first. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me. And has not carried out my commands. And then we read this. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. And this is, remember, Samuel's an old man. He's thinking about not only himself and the relationship that he had with Saul, but he's thinking about the people of God. He knows he's not going to be around forever. And he's thinking, who's going to lead this people? Because this man has tragically decided to follow his own ways. So he cries all night long. Samuel couldn't see beyond the failure of Saul. He didn't see and he couldn't see that the story wasn't finished yet. Remember, God had made some incredible promises to the nation of Israel. He made covenants with them. And the word covenant is basically God's surety of the promise. Like these things are going to happen even when the people can't see it. The promises that God made to him and to the nation were going to be fulfilled. And so God came along in verse 1 and he nudged Samuel. He gave him a little bump. Have you ever felt being nudged? You know, when God bumps you along to trust Him? To believe in what He is doing? 
reminding you of his plan? Isn't that often where the crisis of faith is, right? Do you ever read the Old Testament and think, God, why wouldn't you just speak to us like you spoke to them? It'd be so clear. God, if you would just, with your audible voice, speak to me right now, I would listen to you. Do you ever think that? Oh, man. I wish I would. But they didn't. And they had the audible voice of God. But sometimes God just nudges us along. He meets us where we are in our distress. And he kind of just bumps us in the direction of where we need to go. The Lord called Samuel to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. Samuel didn't know him, but his task was clear. God said, for I've selected a king for myself among this man's sons. The Lord had chosen a new king. This king would not come from the choice of man. This king would come from the choice of God. Now understand the stress that Samuel's facing. He had just finished rebuking Saul. Saul's still king. He wasn't called to abdicate the throne. He wasn't removed from office. In fact, the rest of 1 Samuel, and we're talking chapters upon chapters, right? We're looking at another 14, 15 chapters. Saul was still on the throne. He's still king. But God is doing something differently. Samuel was under a lot of stress. In verse 2, it indicates this. He says, how can I go there? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Now, why would he say something like that? Because Bethlehem is close by to where Saul lived. Samuel was in the area of Ramah. And all along the way to Bethlehem, which was an 11-mile journey, he would pass by Gibeah, which was Saul's hometown. So Samuel's like, man, if I go near there, I just rebuked him. He's not going to receive me favorably. I mean, Samuel thought, I may have God on my side, but Saul has all the troops. So the Lord met Samuel with a reiteration of his command. Note what the Lord said to Samuel. Go, and I will show you what to do. Do you see that? Go, and I will show you what to do. God doesn't respond about Saul. Samuel fears Saul. God meets him where he is, and he says, Go. He doesn't say anything about Saul. He doesn't say anything about the circumstance. He doesn't say anything about that pressure point. He doesn't say anything about the potential trouble that could exist, right? God invites Samuel to believe him by faith. The Lord knows what he's doing. God is never at a loss of what to do. 
And when we, like Samuel, are often coming up with all of the excuses of why we shouldn't do something, and God says, go, then we are really admitting that we don't want to believe God in that moment. Faith is counting on God when we do not know what tomorrow holds. And there are times in our lives when we just need to simply obey the Lord and not try to figure out all the potential obstacles. Now, this is very convicting to me because I, I want to know all of the possible scenarios when it comes to making a decision. Okay, if I do this, where's this going to take me? If I don't do this, what's going to happen? You can ask the elders when we have our elder meetings and we're talking through a situation and we're praying about something and we're, we're thinking through, God, where are you leading next? I'm always sitting back and thinking, okay, if we do this, then could this happen? And I can be trapped in my mind of all of the what ifs. And the problem is none of those things could ever happen. And we waste all this time When we just simply need to obey the Lord, God says to Samuel, go, and I will show you what to do. Verse 4 is really important for us as we see Samuel's response. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came trembling to meet him and said, do you come in peace? Now, the first part of that is what's really important for us, right? Samuel's afraid. I don't want to go. Saul's going to come after me. What could he do for, to me? God says, no, go, and I'm going to show you what to do. So what do we read in verse 4? Samuel didn't call a committee meeting. He didn't look at his calendar and say, well, I've got to move some things around, or, oh, my tummy hurts today. You know, maybe I'll wait until I feel better. He didn't do that. Verse 4 says what? So Samuel did what the Lord said. Beautifully simple. He did what God said. He trusted God and he believed in his promises. And what's interesting about all of this, Samuel has no idea who he's going to meet when he goes there. He just knows he has to call Jesse and bring, to have Jesse bring his sons. And we know from the text that Samuel didn't know Jesse, and he didn't know his sons. He didn't know what he was walking into. And on the other side of it, the elders of the city came to Samuel when he entered the city in verse 4, and they're trembling because they're thinking, okay, Samuel, why are you here, and is there trouble? Because they know that there's a fracture between King Saul and him. And so they're thinking, is there trouble? They're wondering why this judge had shown up in their town. And so we read this in verses 5 through 10. He said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord had not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And so Samuel calms their fears. And he says, in peace, I have come. I'm not here for trouble. I'm not here to stir anything up. In peace, I come. He wants to offer a sacrifice. And before so, he asks the elders and Jesse and his sons to come and consecrate themselves. Now, this is likely in reference to, to what the ceremonial cleansing was in the Old Testament times. They were to consecrate, prepare themselves for what was to take place in the offerings that were to be given. We're not sure exactly what they did, but Samuel has a mission, and he's in the process of honoring God to make it happen. And so Jesse comes with his family, well, at least most of them. Remember, God is looking for a man of his choice. A man after his own heart. And so in verse 6, we read that his first son, Eliab, is brought before Samuel. Samuel surely thought it was this one. He's the oldest of the family. He had the rank and position in the family. In chapter 17, we see that Eliab was a soldier in Saul's army. Samuel surely thought, okay, he's the one. Samuel was sure, but in verse 7, we read these all too familiar words. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The problem with Saul was that the nation looked outward. They looked at his stature. They looked at his charisma. They looked at everything that they could see with their eyes and said, this is the man. He looks like a good leader. Young people, I'm going to show something on the slide. I want you to see it. I want you to read it. I want you to burn it into your hearts. The Lord is not concerned with the outward appearance. He's not. God doesn't care about the outside. Should we take care of the outside? Sure, we should. But life isn't all all about what is on the outside. I mean, we can look the part. We can act the part. We can do all of this stuff on the outside, trying to convince ourselves or trying to believe that the other person has it all together. But God isn't concerned about the outside. He wants to know what's going on in here. And that is what God is concerned about. God is not limited with seeing only the material parts of a life. He can look inside. He can see the desires and intentions of every person. That is a scary thought. God can see the desires and intentions of every person. And from God's point of view, his point of view is always perfect. He And he chooses always what is right for the responsibility that he calls. Now this phrase, a man after God's own heart, that we looked at earlier on in 1 Samuel 13, 14. And that David is the only person that is called in all of Scripture as a man after God's own heart. Isn't just 
a, a verse written about David's heart for God. But in the original Hebrew, it actually focuses on the, the person that God's heart is set upon. That God's heart is set upon David. In the choosing of Israel's next king, we see God's sovereign and gracious purposes. And so the rest of the sons of Jesse pass by, and none of them are confirmed by the Lord. Samuel may have started to sweat this out. He's probably thinking, okay, I'm doing what you say you want me to do, and here they are, and we're going through everything you want me to do. And yet there's no confirmation. And so in verse 11, he asks, are these all of the children? And Jesse responds, no. The youngest. There remains yet the youngest, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. The youngest is tending the sheep, doing the job of the responsibility of the family. And so he's out doing the work. Samuel says, we are not going to rest. We're not going to even try to be comfortable until that son is brought in. And so I can meet him. If you remember, though, all of the sons were to be invited. Jesse, bring your whole family. Samuel's here. Okay. So why didn't the youngest come along? Well, it was likely because he was still just a young teenager. And he was busy doing the work that was left to him as a shepherd. Samuel calls for him, and they can't go until he comes. And so in verses 12 through 13, this is what we read. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. We read that when David was brought in from the fields, he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Now, the word ruddy can mean red hair, as some have supposed. I don't know. I haven't met many red-headed Middle Eastern people. <laughs> All right, that's the picture that we have. Like, he's some kind of Irish Jewish person. Well, it, that's not it, I don't think. I, I think ruddy also refers to his complexion reddish complexion and why would he have a reddish complexion because he spent his days outside taking care of sheep some of you just got back from the beach this week and i can tell you have a reddish complexion from being out in the sun it's that kind of thing now we read that he's an attractive looking boy that seems like external things but he's hardly a potential king. I mean, he's a teenage shepherd. And here's David, walks into the house, smell, still smelling like the sheep. And all of a sudden, an old man hobbles over, pours oil on his head. It drips down his hair, drops on his back. 
And we read from the, old, the historian of the time of Jesus, Josephus, that the, the Jewish understanding of what took place was that Samuel the aged whispered in his ear the meaning of the symbol of him being anointed with oil and said, you will be the next king. Now, that, we're not sure about that. It doesn't tell us that in the text. But the Jewish understanding was that when Samuel met David in this way, he assured him of what God was doing. This act of anointing was a physical symbol of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon David from that day forward. The Spirit departed Paul, and the Spirit came upon David. And then Samuel leaves. Can you imagine? This family's together doing their thing. David comes in. Samuel says, not this one, not this one, not this one, not this one. Oh, you're the one. Anoints him. And then goes. They don't have a sit down. They don't talk about what is in store for him. He doesn't give him any instruction. David, now that this has happened, this is what I want you to do. None of it. So where did David go? Well, he didn't go off to king's school. He didn't order his dad around. He didn't posture himself over his brothers. No, in a few verses down in verses 17 through 19, this is what we read. And we're going to look at this passage next week, but let me just highlight what we read here. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men said, behold, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who was a skillful musician, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the flock. Where did David go after Samuel anointed him as Israel's next king? He went back to the sheep. And why is that important? Because David was faithful in the things he was called to be faithful to. Are you faithful in the small things of life? Listen, our lives are more full of small, mundane things than big moments. You're going to have more mundane moments of your life where God is going to ask you to be faithful than in big, life-changing, life-altering kind of moments. It's in the mundane things that will cultivate your character more than the big moments that are full of pressure. Who you are in the everyday tells yourself, tells God, and tells the people around you who you are more than what happens in the crisis. And so as we close today, I want to point your attention to what God is doing in your life right now. What's He doing right now? Where is He calling you to be faithful in? Are you like Samuel? One who can be nudged by God to go where God wants you to go and says, listen, I'm I'm going to tell you what to do. Just go. Are you like David, that when called by God, you can continue to be faithful in the small things of your life? And more importantly, as with both men, do you see that the Lord is close to you?
Are you aware of his presence so that when he does move, you know it? God is looking for faithful people. People who will trust him no matter where he leads. That might mean in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your occupation, and in all of the mundane moments of your life. But be faithful, faithful to him, and watch him work. Let's pray.